Uh, Turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 19 as we continue to work through the book of Genesis. And we, uh, we come to really the, the end of a, a portion of Genesis, a section in Genesis this morning. Uh, we've been in the story of Lot and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, this morning, as we consider this passage, we've got uh, uh, two, two sections. We're going to look at verses 23 through 29. We're also, though, going to read 30 through the end of the chapter, 38. Uh, we're not going to neglect 30 through 38. It's, uh, it's a very strange and difficult and disturbing passage, but we're not going to focus on it this morning either. Uh, there are, are several things in that passage that I'll point out very, very quickly, and then we'll spend most of our time in the first portion this morning. Uh, in this narrative of Lot and his daughters in 30 through the end of the chapter, uh, we're, we're reminded here as we come to the end of the narrative that Lot was not delivered because of his own personal righteousness. Uh, We're reminded here in the sin that we see Lot engaged in that he was fallen like the rest and that his salvation must have come from some other source. It must have been based on some other reality. We're going to see that in the verses this morning. Uh, It reminds us that the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was only a foreshadowing. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. That does not mean that sin is put away. Uh, we, We see even among those who are being delivered that sin is still a reality in the world. It's meant to teach us where Moab and the Ammonites come from. Uh, We're told at the end of that text that the result of the activity we see there is that the the people of Moab and the people of Ammon have their beginning. And that's going to matter because those two nations are going to to interact with Israel in the the narrative to come, particularly in the Exodus. Uh, And then ultimately Ruth comes from the Moabite people. And so it's beginning to introduce us to to those lines of the, the narrative Uh, And it seals the lesson that life for the believer apart from the covenant community is dangerous. That's been part of Lot's story, hasn't it? He separated himself from Abraham and went down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And now he's come out of Sodom and Gomorrah and gone up into the hills and is living in a cave. We as Christians are not meant to be islands. We're not meant to be on our own. But God has given us to one another for community to build up and encourage and strengthen. Those are all lessons we can take from Lot and his daughters. uh, Lessons that we've covered already in the book of Genesis or that we'll cover as we continue to move forward. This morning, again, we're going to focus on these opening verses of our passage, 23 through 29. Let me pray for us and we'll read the text this morning. Father, we, uh, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that, uh, that you, because of, of you, because of your spirit living in us, because of the gift of the spirit that you've given to us, we're able to read these stories of destruction And while we are impressed by your terrible wrath, we are also reminded of the good news that justice is coming, and yet we are those who are being delivered from that justice as well. And so, fathers, we consider this history this morning. We pray that we would come to understand it rightly, that we would be strengthened and built up. Father, though we come to it ourselves still in weakness, still struggling with the flesh. We rejoice that you've made promises to us and you're faithful to keep those promises. And among them is the promise that when we open up your word and we read it according to uh, the work of the Spirit in our hearts and minds, 
that you are at work shaping us into the image of Christ even as we wait for his return. So we give thanks for that and we rest in that promise this morning as we open up your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hear the reading of God's word, Genesis 19, beginning in verse 23. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the the Lord, and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley, and he looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come in to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, This morning, uh, three things that we're going to see with respect to God's wrath. God's wrath is certain. God's wrath is certain. God's wrath is complete. His wrath is complete. And God's wrath is satisfied. God's wrath is satisfied. First this morning, God's wrath is certain. God said He would certainly destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He told Abraham that and and invited Abraham to intercede on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angels came into the town to Lot and, and delivered this message to Lot that destruction was certainly coming. This narrative is meant to foreshadow, we talked about last week, the coming destruction of all of the wicked on the last day. It points to this truth that their destruction is certainly coming. And the New Testament bears this out with Christ and the apostles consistently teaching the coming judgment. So that as we we consider God's word and we see in this passage and we see in many passages throughout the Old Testament, both the proclamation that a a final judgment is coming and these, these little, if you will, if we can call them little, they weren't little to the people living through them, these little judgments, these little destructions that foreshadow the coming judgment we cannot say to ourselves that, that the judgment has come and there is no further threat of judgment. We cannot say to ourselves that the, the judgment 
is somehow an Old Testament idea. And when we come to the New Testament, we have a, a different God and a different story and a different promise. Judgment is coming from, from the very beginning of our sin. Judgment is pronounced, and it's pronounced as a promise, and it is fulfilled every bit as certainly as the promises of God's salvation and grace and mercy. We see that on display. There's, there's a, uh, an unavoidable destruction that has been coming for the last few weeks for us in this narrative. A proclamation of judgment that cannot be avoided. Even Abraham's intercession is not able to bring this judgment to an end, to avert this judgment in any way. Everyone is deserving of this judgment, we learn in that negotiation that Abraham enters into with the Lord. God's wrath is certain. The New Testament bears this out. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 3. I could have gone anywhere in the New Testament. Judgment is all over the place in the New Testament. Christ, in His earthly ministry, made quite clear that judgment is coming. The apostles, all of them, and particularly, of course, the ones we have in the New Testament who are writing, Paul and Peter and John, they consistently said judgment is coming, an absolute, ultimate, inescapable judgment. And so I struggled, honestly, to decide what I was going to read. I couldn't read them all, but I settled on 2 Peter chapter 3. I think he captures all of this so well. He says in chapter 3, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation." For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and His works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Do you hear what Peter says? Peter is clear. The promise of judgment that was delivered from the very beginning of this fallen world, from the fall itself in Genesis 3, it's received these little fulfillments. But Peter says that Noah and Lot, these examples of destruction, are all meant to point us towards that final and absolute destruction 
which will certainly come. God's wrath is certain. There is no question of its fulfillment. Little ones, have you, have you ever seen something coming? Your parents told you something is going to happen and you're either afraid of it or you're excited about it. And it seems like forever until it comes. Maybe you were told you're going to Disneyland. That would strike fear uh, in my heart. For you, it's probably a matter of excitement. But it's, it's so far away and you wait and you wait and you're always asking mom and dad, right? Is it almost time? When are we going? And it can even begin to seem like it's never going to come. But that's the way that God's final salvation and His wrath are. We, we've waited and waited and waited. But listen, as certainly as your parents have bought the plane tickets or whatever plans they've made to get you to Disneyland or Disney World, as certainly as you will go, more certain even than that, is the certainty that God is coming again. And when He does, He will come in wrath and judgment against those who are not trusting in Jesus Christ as their only hope. What do we do with all of this this morning? It should drive us to Christ for mercy and in praise of His glorious grace. That's the first thing that that we, we ought to be doing with this truth. If God's wrath is indeed certain, if a day is coming absolutely and without fail, when God will finally execute wrath against all of the ungodly forever, it should drive us to Christ for mercy. We don't consider this truth about His wrath that's coming and say to ourselves, I'm so glad I don't deserve that wrath. But instead, we recognize that we do deserve it. Just as certainly as Lot is delivered from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and and immediately proves that he was not worthy of that salvation, we are not worthy. We are deserving instead of the justice that is coming. And so the truth of God's coming judgment, it it ought to strike uh, to some degree. And I'm going to, I'm going to, let me finish what I'm going to say. It ought to strike terror into our hearts. And that terror should only be relieved by the knowledge that we have a Savior in Jesus Christ. It should drive us to Christ for that mercy. And it should drive us to Christ in praise of His glorious grace, recognizing that we've already begun to receive that mercy. Ought to cause us to lift our voices in praise. When we sing in praise to God about the salvation that is ours in Jesus Christ, we are singing not only about what we have gained in Christ, but what we have avoided in wrath. We've been delivered from God's just wrath, and it should cause us to sing to the praise of His glorious grace. It should drive us to share with those who don't know this ultimate reality. Those who don't know that the wrath of God is coming. Those who are eating and drinking and giving in marriage and being given in marriage, those who are reveling in this life, believing that there is nothing to follow, we ought to, out of recognition for the truth of the certainty of God's wrath, be compelled by love to tell them about that coming wrath and about the only hope of escaping it. It should satisfy our desire for justice. This truth, that God's wrath is coming should satisfy our desire for justice. 
You may be following closely what's happening in Israel right now, and you, you may find yourself either deeply mourning or deeply enraged at the injustice of the wickedness that has been executed against the Israelis by Hamas. There's a part of you that may want to do something about it, that may wish you could do something about it, a part of you that is so offended by the injustice and the wickedness of it that you are moved to do something. And there are appropriate actions that can be taken. But listen, we need to understand that nothing we do, nothing that we do, or that the United States government does, or that Benjamin Netanyahu does, nothing that we do can or will accomplish the perfect justice that is required in the face of such wickedness. Not until God comes in judgment will perfect justice be accomplished for those who are in rebellion against God. But this is our hope, isn't it? We want justice to be done and we want it to be done perfectly. The promise of God's coming wrath is that it will be accomplished fully and perfectly. Justice will be done. And for those of us who are in Christ, that justice is not avoided. That justice is executed against Jesus Christ for us. Every single sin that has ever been committed and ever will be committed in all of the history of creation will receive justice or has received it in Jesus Christ. Finally, on this point, it should motivate us to live for Christ until he returns. Did you hear that instruction in Peter? Uh, How now should we live knowing that this judgment is coming? How should we live? We should be those who in Christ and by the power of the Spirit are pursuing righteousness. Listen, it's difficult. I think we... Perhaps, in, in, to, to assume the best about us, we, we so fully take hold of the grace and the mercy of God that belongs to us in Jesus Christ that we, we run the risk of failing to be awed by the wrath of God that's coming. And you say, I, I don't need to be awed. I'm in Christ. It won't be executed against me. No, but it will be executed And it will be executed against those who are in rebellion against God. And the awe with which we consider the wrath of God that is coming ought to either move us to compassion for the lost, or it ought to move us to praise to God because of the grace and the mercy that we have in Christ. Do you see this? There is is a relationship between the joy that is ours in Christ and the compassion that is ours for the lost, a relationship between those things and our understanding for, of and appropriate awe of the wrath of God that is coming. To say it another way, the consequence of coming to understand and believe the gospel is not that we no longer care about the wrath of God. It is that we understand that wrath more fully and we respond to that truth correctly. 
we respond to it according to God's word. God's wrath is absolutely certain. Absolutely certain. And that ought to be, on the one hand, a source of comfort to us who are in Christ. Comfort because we know that in Christ we have escaped it. Comfort because we know that that wrath will come against the ungodly. Justice will be done. It ought to be a source of great comfort to us as Christians. Second, this morning, God's wrath is complete. God's wrath is not only certain, but it is complete. And all through the text, we've been getting these, uh, these descriptions of the, the destruction, God's wrath as it's executed against Sodom and Gomorrah, that invite us to think of it as total. We, we recognize in the narrative that it's limited in time and space, that it's, it wasn't the whole world that suffered this wrath, and it wasn't a, an ongoing, eternal judgment of God in, uh, in a temporal sense. But for those in that time and that place, it was complete. We've seen it over and over again in this morning's text. Look, again, beginning uh, there, we'll we'll pick up just in, in 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the city and what grew on the ground. Nothing in this valley, cities, people, plants, nothing survives other than Lot and his daughters. Nothing survives the judgment of God. Even the word overthrew, I uh, I think, is, is probably easily misconstrued by us today. To, to overthrow something today suggests simply to, to remove it from power, uh, to remove it from being something that, that matters, perhaps we overthrew it. We made it no longer important. Overthrew here ought to be understood in a much more physical sense. It's, it's as if God reaches down into the valley, scoops out the cities and tosses them, and just tosses them. He's overthrowing the cities absolute, utter destruction. And the verb is used there in 25. It's used twice again in 29 together with the verb for destruction, God's wrath is absolutely complete. In verse 17, in last week's text, the angels, having carried Lot and his family out of the city, say to them, now flee, run, don't hesitate, don't delay, get out of this valley unless you get caught lest you get caught up in the destruction that's coming. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And even here, with the the language of the valley and the destruction that's coming and running away from it and being swept away by it, if you don't get out of the way, gives the impression of God's destruction sweeping like waters into this valley and filling every crevice. It's no mistake that that the, the image of waters flooding is used to describe the destruction of God, us already here in Genesis 19 being on the other side of the flood. The language used in the passage here to describe the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is not a light destruction. It's not a, a mere disordering of their lives. It is an absolute, utter destruction of everything living. 
God's destruction of the cities and all those who are in them and everything in the valley is complete. And there is no escape from this complete wrath, this complete destruction, except to be in Christ, except that escape provided by God. And listen, there can be no looking back. There can be no looking back as you escape. Lot's wife didn't glance. I, I think uh, perhaps the uh, Renaissance paintings that depict this scene give the wrong impression as Lot's family flees up the valley attempting to get to Zoar before the, the destruction comes. And we often see Lot's wife painted fleeing as she glances over her shoulder and in that moment turns into a pillar of salt. But that's not what the text suggests at all. In fact, if we were to read it that way, we, we end up with some chronological difficulties in the text, some things that seem to be out of sequence and don't make sense, but instead, in verse 26, Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. That look back is not a glance over her shoulder, but instead, Lot's wife has turned, is facing Sodom and Gomorrah and refuses to go. She's been brought out of the city together with Lot and her daughters. But when the angels have said to Lot, flee, get out of the valley, run away, or you will not escape judgment. And Lot, of course, has, has bargained with them, has, has, uh, has pled with them to be allowed to go into this little town here in the valley. And they've graciously agreed to allow him to go there and to tell him he would be safe there. Lot and his daughters turn and flee to Zoar. His wife does not. And I'll, I'll tell you, the particular chronological problem that convinces me of this is that the angels have told Lot, we cannot bring this destruction until you get safe to Zoar. How is it then that Lot's wife is caught out in the open? It's because she has refused to flee. There can be no looking back. Listen to Christ in Luke 17. He says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. And on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Lot's wife was so convinced that her life was to be preserved in the goods and the, 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 the benefits that she had in Sodom that having been carried forcibly out of the city, she stands in the valley with her eyes fixed on the city, refusing to budge, believing that that is where her life is and that there is no future in the salvation that's being provided. There is no escape from the coming judgment of God except in the salvation that God holds out. This is why Christ says at the end of that reading there, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Lot's wife is seeking to preserve her life. Everything she has and knows is in that city, and she cannot bring herself to imagine any other life but that one. 
And so she does not escape the wrath of God. You cannot have God for salvation and the world for your pleasure. You cannot have God for salvation and the world for your pleasure. Those who cling to the world will be lost. The wrath of God that is coming is a complete wrath. It is a perfect wrath and destruction. And there is no escape apart from Jesus Christ. The truth of the certainty and infinite extent of God's wrath executed against the ungodly is a sobering truth and it ought to preserve for us a sober outlook on life. I don't mean that we walk around always with our eyes downcast with no joy expressed whatsoever, but if you don't have any room in your worldview for a sobriety with respect to what is true, what is coming, what God has done to deliver us from what is coming, if everything's a joke, if life is lighthearted and always only easy, you might consider the possibility that you've not rightly considered the wrath of God that's coming and what it costs to deliver us from that wrath. There's an appropriate time and place for sobriety with respect to this truth. And so what do we do with this? What do we do with the truth that God's wrath is not only certain, but it's complete. It's perfect in the sense that there will be nothing left undone. We embrace the truth that there is nowhere to hide from this complete wrath except in Jesus Christ. There's nowhere to hide. Again, it, it should satisfy our desire for justice. The knowledge that even the imperfect justice of this world is insufficient. At our best, we, we cannot get true justice, not perfect justice. And so there is for us a comfort in knowing that justice will be accomplished. God is powerful and he is wise in his wrath. He is neither unable to execute perfect wrath, nor is he foolish in the execution of it. His wrath is perfect and complete. And there is nowhere to hide except in Christ. And that brings us to our last point this morning. God's wrath is satisfied. God's wrath is satisfied. God has made satisfaction by a covenant redeemer. He's made a way of escape. We sang it in... Uh, let us love and sing and wonder this morning. Justice smiles and asks no more. Justice smiles and asks no more. It has been satisfied in Jesus Christ, our covenant head. What do I mean? Why am I emphasizing that He is our covenant head? It's because in Christ... It is with Christ that the covenant promises are made, in Christ that the covenant promises are fulfilled, and it is only because we know Christ and are in Him, trusting in Him, that we are delivered. A covenant has been made by God, promises to deliver His people from this wrath and judgment. And he has accomplished that and is fulfilling that in one person, Jesus Christ, who is our covenant head. And it's because of Christ. It is for Christ's sake that he is saving us. 
And look, we get that explicitly in this text here. Look at verse 29 again. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow. Was it because of Lot's righteousness that he was delivered? No. There's nothing in Lot particularly that caused God to deliver Lot from the judgment that was coming. It was because he remembered Abraham. Why? What, how in the world do we get from God remembered to Abraham to he delivered Lot? What's, what's the logical connection here? Why does that matter? It's because Abraham is himself a covenant head. And as a covenant head, he foreshadows Christ, our true covenant head. God saves Lot because Lot knows Abraham. It is for Abraham's sake that Lot is delivered. Not because of anything in him. It's kind of a silly uh, illustration, but years ago, I was with a group of fellow pastors in Atlanta. We were there for uh, a conference that week, and it was time to, to head to the airport and go home to Dallas. And, uh, and we were sitting having breakfast in the, the hotel, and the, uh, the one who was our, the leader among us was, uh, was very relaxed and reading the paper, and the rest of us were saying, come on, David, we've got to get to the airport, we've got to get to the airport, and he kept saying, it's going to be fine, we've got plenty of time, and of course, we got to the airport, and we were really, really running late. And so we ran through the airport. It was every man for himself. Nobody was waiting for anybody. Uh, we, we got to security. One of our guys got diverted, and his bag was being opened and searched, and the rest of us were running. I mean pell-mell. I mean as fast as we could through the Atlanta airport. And, uh, and we, we got to the gate and literally headed down the jetway as they closed the door behind us. And we found our seats and we were sitting as the, the door to the airplane itself was closed, and we realized one of our members had not made it. He'd missed the flight. And we were sitting on the airplane, and David had his cell phone, and his cell phone started to buzz, and it was our group member who was standing at the gate, and there was nobody there. Nobody. Door was closed. He missed it. And he's on the phone, and he says, David, Please tell them that I'm out here. Please tell them that I'm out here. I don't want to miss this flight. And David gets up and goes to the flight attendant and says, listen, my friend is out there. He's at the gate. He's got his ticket. He's ready to go. But there's nobody there to let him in. And the flight attendant said, I'm sorry, it's too late. Door's closed. And David pled with the flight attendant until she said, okay, fine. And she opened the door to the plane, went down the jet walk, opened the door to the gate, and retrieved this member of our group and brought him onto the plane, there was nothing that he could do but appeal to the one who could intercede for him. That is the only reason he made it onto that flight. And it is the only reason any of us will enter into heaven and escape the wrath of God is because we have one who will intercede for us. There's nothing that we can do. Nothing, but we have one who intercedes for us. God's wrath is satisfied. Justice smiles and asks no more. 
Again, notice that Lot's salvation has nothing to do with his own righteousness, but is entirely rooted in this covenant head. He knew Abraham. Abraham knew him. Abraham, in fact, has already interceded for Lot, hasn't he? For the sake of Lot, Abraham says, if there are this many righteous in the city, would you spare the entire city? Daniel says it in our confession of sin this morning. Look back in your order of worship. This is Daniel's prayer. When he realizes that God says the, the time that they spend in exile will be 70 years and then they'll, they'll come back and he realizes the 70 years is almost up and he prays this beautiful prayer of repentance. And look what he says. He, right down at the very end, the second line, delay not for your own sake, O Lord. It is not for Lot's sake that Lot is delivered, but for the sake of Abraham, who is the covenant head. It is not for our sake, not ultimately, that we are delivered from the wrath of God that is coming. It is for the sake of Jesus Christ, who is our covenant head. This is not just a, a point of systematic theology. It's not uh, a truth that you put on the pile of truths you have to believe in order to be saved. Listen, this is why this matters so deeply. If it is for the sake of Jesus Christ that God is saving those who are His, then what possible chance is there that God will disappoint His Son? It is for Christ's sake that we are being saved. And could the father possibly disappoint his son in this? Oh, what a great ground of assurance. That my salvation does not rest in me, but it rests in a covenant head. It rests in Jesus Christ, for whose sake the father is saving his children. And my salvation is no more at risk than the possibility that God would disappoint His Son. Christ is our covenant head. God will deliver us because He remembers Christ. It's for Christ's sake that we are saved. And until that salvation is made perfect, Christ intercedes for us. God will not disappoint Christ in this. He says in Psalm 2, until I have made your enemies a footstool. The scriptures, Old and New Testament, the Psalms in particular in the Old Testament are filled with the promises made to Jesus Christ and who, for whose sake God will keep those promises. Brothers and sisters, the reality of the coming judgment is a fundamental aspect of reality. It's a truth which no one can escape. It is certain and it will be complete and the only hope of salvation is by taking refuge in our covenant head, Jesus Christ, for whose sake God will deliver his people. Are you hiding in Christ this morning? Jonathan Edwards gave this advice to a young girl who had recently converted under his ministry. Some of you may have noticed this. It's at the bottom of all of my emails. He says, in all your course, walk with God and follow Christ. As a little, poor, helpless child, 
taking hold of Christ's hand, keeping your eye on the mark of the wounds on his hands and side. From these wounds came the blood that cleanses you from sin and hides your nakedness under the skirt of the white, shining robe of his righteousness. What a joy and privilege it is to hide in the robe of Christ and his righteousness this morning. It's a refuge available to anyone who will trust in Christ alone, and it's the only refuge that will withstand the storm of the just wrath of God that is coming against the ungodly. If you're not hiding yourself in those robes, if if you are not saying to yourself, believing this morning that you are a sinner deserving that wrath of God that's coming, but that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that He has put all of that away, He took that wrath in your place, and because of that, you will not face that wrath. If you're not believing that this morning, then you are exposed And whether it is in your natural lifetime or not, the wrath of God is coming and you will suffer it. And it will be complete. It will be forever. Trust in Christ. Believe in Him. And you will be saved. Let's pray.